Tonight's Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. We'll read verse 6 and 7 and then skip down to verse 10 through 12. The prophet writes, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Picking up in verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, cleared of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be, shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And then picking up the 32nd verse of the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, widows, widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have promised to reveal yourself to us in your word and in your son Jesus. And as we seek your face in these things tonight, we ask that you would transform us. That we would, you would use them to shape us into the kind of people that make you known here and around the world. And would you exhort and encourage our hearts in the reading of your word. 
We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, <clears throat> I like to try to get ahead on my sermon preparation uh, sometimes. So, I, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is, is checking out uh, some commentaries at, at, at the library at Samford. I, I did my MDiv at Beeson Divinity School, and there are some little pockets up in the upper top of the library at Samford where I can get a kind of quiet that I can't get anywhere else. But it's not right there by all the commentaries. So I tend to like go to the reference section for those of you who have been to, to, to the library there and gather out two or three or four different commentaries. And I kind of carry them up to my secret little hideaway. So I got up there and I, I opened the commentaries on the book of Acts and I opened to chapter 9 and um, they were thin when it comes to this section. In fact, one said... These miracles done by Peter take place outside of Jerusalem. And then it picked up in chapter 10. <laughs> and I thought, well, man, I'm just going to go say that. I'm sure that will help everyone. So there you go. They happened outside of Jerusalem. So in, in a lack of reading material, I wanted to try to understand a little bit about the people in this story, whether it was Peter or Aeneas and Dorcas. So I found a book that I spent much of my last week reading called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. This book's about snails. 176 pages about snails. And as you hear me say that, I, I hope that brings two things to mind. First, why would be a totally reasonable thing to think, and I promise we will get there. The second is, goodness, John, you really do love us. You're right. I really do. So I read all 176 pages, and I, I actually have to tell you, it's kind of a good book. The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. So this text picks up, I promise I'll come back to the snail. This text picks up with Peter. We've just spent a little bit of time with Paul in his conversion. And much of the rest of the book of Acts will jump back and forth back and forth between the work that Peter is doing in Jerusalem and close to the area of Jerusalem and the work that Paul is doing in the scattered places with the Gentiles. So this is the first kind of bounce over across the narrative. And we're joining Peter, who we haven't seen for a few chapters now. And Peter, as we are told, is that he, he, he's outside the city. He went here and there among them all. Here and there, among them all. And when he gets to a place called Lydda, which is a small town outside of Jerusalem, he meets this guy named Aeneas. And that's where our story will pick up. So we'll talk about Aeneas, what Peter experiences in his time with Aeneas. We'll talk about Dorcas and what exactly happens, what's going on there. And then I'll have a few words to encourage you about what I think this says for us. And if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, and I don't say this as permission to kind of tune out until the end, but I do hope, I do hope this sticks. Something that is so clear in this passage is that wherever the name of Jesus goes, life, blessing, and hope follow closely. Wherever the name of Jesus goes, life, blessing, and hope follow closely. So Aeneas... Aeneas has been bedridden, the text tells us, for eight years and was paralyzed. 
Eight years. February 5th, 2015 was eight years ago. Uptown Funk had just come out. There were only six Star Wars movies. Not nine. Oh, for the days. Right? And I just want you to try to take just a moment to imagine that that morning your door shut. And I'm talking to you today in that room you haven't left. In a room with no electric lights, no televisions, no radio, no library, no Kindle, no ebook reader. Still where you were left eight years ago. So I checked out this book on snails because Elizabeth Tova Bailey, who is the author, was on holiday. Man, what am I, English? She was on vacation. <laughs> she was on vacation in the Swiss Alps. And uh, while she was there, she actually caught a little flu that was going around in the, the, the town in Switzerland that she was visiting. And she caught a cold that she couldn't quite shake. She came home, and three weeks later, she still was not feeling well. And she began to talk to her doctors about it. And then about two weeks after that, she woke up one morning and just couldn't get out of bed. And Elizabeth Bailey spent the next two years of her life, at 34 years old, bedridden. One of her friends, during this, brought her a snail to be her pet and her companion. And if that sounds tragic to you, I promise it, it is. But this book is about her learning about snails during her two years lying in bed, but it, it's also a wonderful description and image into the life of someone who is so stuck. So I tried to use it this week to get into Aeneas's mind. So if you listen to this passage with me. She's writing about her pity that now the snail has to live alone like her. There is a certain depth of illness that is piercing in its isolation. The only rule of existence is uncertainty, and the only movement is the passage of time. One cannot bear to live through another loss of function, and usually friends and family can't bear to watch. An unspoken, unbridgeable divide widens between you and everyone you know. Even if you are still who you were, you can't be anymore. Sometimes the people you know best withdraw and then you withdraw from yourself. There were times when I wished my viral invader had claimed me completely. Felt like it would be better to live an exuberant life and leave as one exits a party, simply opening a door and stepping out. But instead, the cruel virus took me to the edge of life and left me trapped in its pernicious shadow with symptoms that are only barely tolerable one day and become too severe the next and with the unjustness of unexpected relapses that overnight erase years of improvement. You're right back where you started. Obviously, these are not Aeneas's words. But I wonder if that helps us catch the moment that Peter walks into. Peter comes in. And, you know, the way the scriptures are written, we don't know that they tried to record every single moment that happened. 
So I don't know if Peter literally begins this way or if there's some small talk beforehand. Hey, Peter. Hey, Aeneas. I'm not sure. But the way it's recorded, Peter walks through the door to Aeneas. And he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. First, make, make your bed? <laughs> this guy has been laying there for eight years, and Peter's like, get up, you've been healed. Okay, do your chores. <laughs> of all things, make your bed. Why do, why do we even make our beds? We just get back in them. Another question for later. Here, I actually do think it's a bit significant. It's significant that he makes his bed because it's part of Peter's way of saying, you won't need this anymore. It reminds me of of Jesus folding his grave clothes at the foot of his bed. I don't need these anymore. Because Jesus has healed him. Because Jesus makes him whole. The same thing that Jesus in the flesh before his ascension was doing all over the place. The same thing that Jesus was doing right here in this moment. The same thing that Jesus does right here in this room with us all the time. Peter has seen this before. And we've seen it before too. Wherever the name of Jesus goes, life, blessing, and hope will follow. That brings us to the second miracle that Peter does, this story of Dorcas. I'll read it again, a couple of the verses. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. The woman was full of good works and charitable deeds that she did, is the way the KJV puts it. I just want to take this moment to remind you that many of the heroic followers of God never really make it into the Bible. Here we have Dorcas, who enters and leaves in a matter of moments. But she was full of good works and acts of charity. There's a crowd of people who loved this woman, Dorcas, They're mostly widows. Now, putting the pieces together, they begin to show the blouses and the skirts and the things that this woman, Dorcas, had knitted for them. Throughout the Bible, people who were widows were a particularly and uniquely disadvantaged community. Women couldn't hold jobs or own property often. So this woman, Dorcas, had dedicated her life to making beautiful things and bestowing them on the poor. She is a woman who, though we don't get any picture of the rest of her life, is testifying to the things that Jesus came to do and be. We need more Dorcases, Tabithas. James will remind us in his letter that the essence of true religion is to care for widows and orphans, and so he might as well say the essence of true religion is to be like Dorcas. There's a special compassion that Jesus shows throughout the Gospels to individuals whose families have failed them and left them isolated. And this is part of Dorcas's story in the kingdom. She was a woman who was full of life, a source of life for many. And here, as Peter comes into the room, she lays dead. And Peter did what? 
He looks at all the cute things that she had made and the people who loved her dearly, and he tells them to get out of the room. And Peter kneels, and he prays. I confess this might not have been my instinct. But it's clearly not for show. There's, there's no one in the room. And I wonder if you can kind of imagine the whispered prayers of your own breath, the, the door behind you shut and closed, the kind of whispering of the widows in the hallway, but a deep silence in the room with you. He prays, then he turns to look at the body, the corpse, and he says, Tabitha, arise. Can you imagine that first breath as Peter hears it? She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, it says that she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And I I think the first time I read this, I was imagining maybe a weak uh, woman trying to get her sense of things. But obviously the text doesn't give us any more clues. But I'm starting to recognize or believe as I read this story that this isn't Peter extending it to help a weak woman up. This is Peter in chivalry helping this woman whom Jesus has brought back to life to the door to see her friends. He gives her his hand and walks her to the door. And he presented her alive. For those of you who have had the grief and hard experience of being near a body without life, without warmth, without color or breath, I worry that it's beyond my capacity to try to explain to you what the power of those things coming back in that moment would be. The glint in Dorcas's eyes, the blush in her cheeks, the curse being turned upside down. And here we have Peter speaking the name of Jesus. And wherever the name of Jesus goes, life, blessing, and hope will follow. So we have this story. Aeneas and Dorcas. These two miracles. As I tried to think about what this would mean for me, for you, for those people that we have tried to build a church together. Here are the three things that I see. First, this should really be no surprise. It feels like a surprise. John, of course it's a surprise. It's a miracle. This is the Jesus that all of you are here to adore. This is the Jesus that all of you know and have known. Even though, maybe, the miraculous works done among Jesus' days and the apostles have begun to become less frequent in our experience, he continues to make sick people well and people dead in their sins alive. We have seen it over and over and over again. You know, one of the things that I hear sometimes from some of you is that it can be a real challenge to see where Jesus is to see where he's working in the drudgery of a work week and a job that's hard and relationships that are challenging. I think if you're looking to see where Jesus is working, if you're looking to see where Jesus is moving, a story like this would tell us to look where the things are wilting, to look where the things are withering, to look where the things are lifeless. Because if we're willing If we're able, if we go into those spaces and look for Jesus, that is where he works the most. 
We break through in this moment. It's not about Peter. It's not about Paul. It's about Jesus and Aeneas and Jesus and Dorcas. And we're going to leave them. But in this moment, in their depth and in their weakness, Jesus has come for them. And so I hope, I pray for you and for our church especially, that we are the people who put ourselves in the places where Jesus does his miraculous work. If we can find those spaces, those places, those moments, and speak the truth and the hope of Jesus, I wonder if we will not see the same kind of life spring forth that the church does here. So first, we should have expected this. My second thing for us is that Jesus loves to remind us. Jesus loves to remind us, and I hate being reminded. I don't know whether it's my ADHD or my trauma from leaving my homework uh, at school or some syllabus that I was supposed to get signed and now I've got like a zero on a grade because I didn't get my syllabus signed. Like I have some scarring experiences from just forgetting things as a child. So sometimes I can feel accused of being stupid or thoughtless when someone reminds me of something. But Jesus loves to remind us of things. And this whole section, these two stories are such a reminder to Peter. They're such a reminder to Peter, and here's why. On Peter's journey, Jesus takes him out of Jerusalem, out of being kind of the center of the church, into these villages. And he experiences these two stories which should feel all familiar. In John chapter 5, Jesus comes across a paralytic man. Peter is standing by. Jesus looks at the paralytic man and tells him, you are healed. Pick up your bed and go. Jesus come, or Peter comes across Aeneas, and you can just hear the memory of that moment in Peter's own words. Make your bed. Why is he thinking about the man's bed? Because he saw Jesus raise a paralytic and tell him to pick up his bed and go. That's what's on Peter's mind. With Dorcas, I want to read you a short passage from the book of Mark. While he was still speaking, he being Jesus, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, or sorry, I apologize, he who's speaking is not Jesus at this moment, it's Jairus. While Jairus was speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the girl was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha, Kumi. Sounds a bit like Tabitha, Kumi, doesn't it? Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. 
You know, in my experience, when I find myself sometimes discouraged or disappointed with the way that Jesus is at work in my life, Jesus has reminded me. He's taken me back to places that I have been where he met me and he showed me and he walked with me through the things in my past. See, these moments weren't just for Aeneas or Dorcas or for us. These moments are for Peter, too. As Peter enters these rooms and sees the Lord at work in these places, he's reminded that it's not him who works and wills. It's not the Apostle Peter with his miraculous skills or gifts. It's in the name of Jesus that the work happens. And whatever Jesus works through Peter for Aeneas or Dorcas, he has worked for Peter in his flesh. So my encouragement for you and for me as well, for our church, is to be willing to be reminded. Be willing to remember where the Lord met you and where he's taken you since. Be willing to enter back into those spaces and places. Also, be willing to come out of yourself. Sometimes it's in the serving of Aeneas and Dorcas that you're reminded of the depth of your faith, the depth of what Jesus has done for you. Who knows how deeply Peter's own soul is ministered to in these moments because of what he's seen and what he's experienced. It can be all too easy to think when you're in a, a moment of, of your faith feeling so frustrating and disappointing and agonizing to kind of curve deeper and deeper in on yourself. But what this passage actually says is that if we'll go to the places and the people that Jesus is going to, we might be reminded of where he's at work. And it might remind us of the way that he's worked on us. So this shouldn't have surprised us. Jesus loves to remind us. And I think the third thing to take away is a little bit of a mission for the church. He presented her alive. Jesus has always been about presenting people back to their families and back to their communities and back to their churches alive, whether it was Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or himself. He's presented those things that were once dead alive. Can you imagine how Dorcas's friends felt, these widows felt, to see her restored, laughing, alive? Every baptism here should be this way. Every conversion here should be this way. Every moment of breakthrough and repentance here should be this way. We have a unique opportunity as the church of Jesus Christ to present in a final way people made alive. Death has no say. Sin has no bearing. We are here to celebrate to rejoice in the Jesus who makes what is dead alive. And we do it again and again and again and again. So if Grace Fellowship's worship for all the years that we are here can just be about presenting people alive, then I think we've done it. I think we've found something there. So let's think about that. Let's learn how to receive people alive. And when God makes alive, let's find ways to present them, to see them, and to rejoice together. Because wherever the name of Jesus goes, life, blessing, and hope follow close by.